Well, let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of Matthew as we find ourselves here in the middle section of chapter 16. Now, as we make our way through the rest of the book of Matthew, Jesus is focused on two things. He's focused on the training of the 12. Their graduation is rapidly approaching. In just a handful of months, Christ is going to be crucified. He's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to be turning the operation over to these guys. And so there's a sense of urgency of getting them ready for the task that God has called them to. The other thing that we're going to be seeing is an intensifying of this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he's not going to be reaching out to the religious leaders. He's going to be breathing condemnation upon them because of their rejection of him. Now here in these middle verses, Jesus has some very important things to say to the 12. And it's interesting, not just what he says, but where he says them, the location of, of these words that he speaks to them. Now we've talked about before that the lion's share of his time was spent in the region of Galilee. He's already been up and running publicly for three years. And most of that three-year period of time has been spent in the region of Galilee. Now, just north of the Sea of Galilee, you'll notice that there are three tributaries that become the headwaters of the Jordan River. In the middle tributary, this is where the city of Caesarea Philippi is located. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, all three of these tributaries are coming from Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon, we tend not to think of the Middle East as being a place of snow and ice, but it's about 10,000 feet in elevation. There's actually a ski resort there on top of Mount Hermon. And so as the weather begins to warm, the snow and ice begin to melt. It makes its way through the crevices of the mountain, and then it just suddenly appears at the base of the mountain. And this is what the fountain at Caesarea Philippi looks like. Now, just to the left of where all of this water is coming out of, there is this, what used to be a massive cave. There have been several very severe earthquakes over the last 1,000, 1,500 years. It's really altered the look of this cave. But at one time it was massive and it had a huge pool of water in it. This water would flow out of the cave. There were some that estimated its depth at over 800 feet deep. Now this was the most pagan place in that part of the world. It, it might have been one of the most pagan places in all of the earth. Now what it probably looked like is in front of that cave to the far left, was a temple that was built for the worship of Caesar. And then as you move to the right, the next object was known as the Shrine of Pan. And then you would have a temple that was dedicated to Zeus. And then as you continue to move to your right, there was what was known as the sacred or the dance floor for the sacred goats. Now what that is all about is that the main god that was worshiped in this area was Pan. Now Pan was the half goat, half guy, God, all right? And uh, Pan was the God of nature. 
Pan uh, had something to do with fertility. So if you wanted a big family, if you wanted your flocks and herds to multiply, you wanted your orchards and your vineyards to do well, this is the guy that you wanted to be on the good side with. This is the guy that was going to bless you uh, in that area. Now, Pan was, um, as I say, he was the god of nature. He was the guy that would make all of the strange noises in the woods at night. This is where we get our word panic. He would cause panic. He would cause this anxiety. He would cause this, this fear. Now, every, every report of this guy is that he was an absolute pervert. Uh, many of the statues that we have today are him hitting on some chick, and uh, he was chasing everything that, that had a skirt. Now, in the winter, what he would do is that he would, he would travel to the underworld. And I, you know, it's winter, you wanna go where it's warm, right? And so he would go to the underworld, and of course, you want Pan to come back. Because you want, you want your family to grow. You want your flocks and herds to be blessed. And so to get Pan to come back, what they would do is they would go to the goat market and they would buy a goat. They would then take the goat to the dance floor of the sacred goat. And you would then dance with your goat. And after you've danced with your goat, you would then uh, go to this large cavern. And there in front of that cavern, you would sacrifice the goat. And then you would take the goat and throw it in that pool of water. Now, if the goat sank, you're in good luck because uh, he has received, Pan has accepted your sacrifice. If your goat floated, well, that's no good. He's rejected your offering. So you gotta go back to the goat market and get a second goat. And then you got to dance again with a goat. And then you got to take a second try at sacrificing it. And hopefully you get all the air out of the lungs so that it ends up sinking. Now you had to do that until you got one that sank. And so this could be a very expensive venture uh, for some. And so this became known as the gates of hell. And what we have to understand that what Jesus is about to say, he is saying in front of the front door of hell. They consider this to be the place that these various gods would go back and forth from this existence into the underworld. And so this is gonna sort of be a, an interesting sermon illustration that God is giving to the guys here. And so we begin reading now in uh, verse 13 where we read this, Matthew tells us, and when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now he is not asking this because he doesn't know who he is. He's not saying this because he's got an identity crisis. He's feeling a little unsure of himself. And so, guys, I need you to really tell me who it is that I am. Notice that he knows who he is. He says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He knows that he is the son of man. Now, he is called the son of God and the son of man. The son of God speaks of his deity. Son of man speaks of his humanity. In Jesus Christ, divinity and humanity are married together. All of the Jews understood that son of man, which was Christ's favorite term that he used for himself, was 
a word or a title of identifying the Messiah. And it goes back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel said that I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So they understood Son of Man was talking about the Messiah. Now Jesus will use this in the presence of the high priest. And the high priest freaks out. We're gonna get to it in the weeks ahead. In Matthew chapter 26, we read that Jesus, now during the trial, he's being silent. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And of course, the high priest freaks out. The high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. And so Christ... He says to these guys, look, I'm the Messiah. What I'd like to know, what are you hearing on the streets? What's the latest hubbub? What's the community saying uh, about me? Notice verse 14. They said, well, some say John the Baptist. Now, that's what, that's what Herod, you remember we had that just uh, a number of uh, weeks ago. Herod, he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, isn't it fascinating that no one is identifying him as the Messiah? Now, through the Old Testament, over and over again, God gave them hundreds of things to look for. He was giving them a heads up about the Messiah. Messiah's gonna be this, Messiah's gonna be that, Messiah's gonna be born here, Messiah's gonna travel here. And he gives them hundreds and hundreds of signs to look for that would identify the Messiah. And here is Christ. He comes and he fulfills hundreds of these things. And yet his ancient people are so spiritually blind that no one is able to come to the conclusion, hey, I believe this guy just might be the Messiah. Now, notice they don't bring anything negative up. They don't say, well, they think you're a jerk or this or that. Now, we know that there were negative opinions out there. I mean, after all, his own family, they thought he was insane. And so we know that they were there. Maybe they don't want to upset the boss. So they're only bringing up the positive things uh, about him here. And then Jesus, he gives them the most important question in all of life. And this question is posed to you and I as well. And we've gotta be careful how we answer this because your eternal destiny rests upon how you answer this question. And so he says in verse 15, he said unto them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered 
and he said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now notice he says, who do you? Now in the Greek, that word you is plural. So he's not asking this of an individual, Peter. He's asking this to the 12 guys. So the 12 guys, they put out these various answers. Some think you're this, some think you're that. Now, again, as I say, notice they're all nice guesses, right? These are all nice men that they are mentioning here. And this is a very human thing. Humans do not like to take a negative stand on Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that? You'll ask your unbelieving friend, well, who do you think the Lord is? And they're always careful not to get too negative on you. They want to they stay, well, I think he was a nice guy. I think he was a good teacher. I think he helped the poor. I think he patted little children on their head. I, I think he was an overall nice guy. But Jesus Christ is too radical to take a middle-of-the-road stand on who he is. You think about what Jesus said. They were not nice, normal things. If people this week come up to you and say to you what Jesus said, you would think they are completely out of their minds. You're at the grocery store. Somebody comes up to you and says, the father raises who he wants from the dead, and I raise whoever I want to from the dead. What are you going to think about that person? Somebody comes up to you at work and says, I'm the resurrection of life. He that lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? No, I don't. You're a whack job. Get away from me. Jesus is too radical. He is either God manifested in the flesh or he is out of his mind crazy. But there is no middle ground. And I ask you, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Now notice that Peter, he says two things. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Savior. And I believe that you are God. It is important to us that we understand Son of God speaks of divinity. If you have a son, your son shares your nature, human nature. If God has a son, that son shares his nature, divinity. And Jesus was constantly calling and referring to himself as being the son of God. In John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said to the religious leaders, I and my father are one. And then the Jews, they took up stones again to stone him. Now Jesus says to them, well, many good works have I done, for which of these are you now going to stone me? And they reply in verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make, now that word make is present tense, you are constantly doing this. You are forever doing this. Doing what? Making yourself out to be God. They understood that when he called himself the son of God, when he called God his father, they knew what he was saying. Now, the reason why this gets so very serious is because of what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 8, in verse 24, when he said, Therefore, I say unto you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. Now, what would that have meant to a Jew? 
it would have taken them back to the burning bush. Moses saying, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, you tell them I am that I am has sent you. And now Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you're going to die in your sin. You see, there are all kinds of Jesuses out there. You remember Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, for he who comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or if you received a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you might well put up with it. He was afraid of this church. Some snake oil salesman might come into this church and begin to promote a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. You people might buy into it. I'm afraid for you. I'm concerned about this. Now, what Jesus do people believe in? Well, we got the Mormons. They believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. We got the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. You've got Islam. They believe that he was a prophet, never died. He was taken up into heaven. He's going to come back one of these days and going to show up on the east side of Damascus. He said, there's all kinds of Jesuses out there. And just because somebody says to you that, oh, I believe in Jesus. Well, let's define terms. What Jesus exactly are you trusting in? And what the scriptures tell us, if you are not trusting in the Christ who is God manifested in the flesh, you are going to die in your sin. Now, Peter, he believes this. Now, notice how Jesus comes back in verse 17 and says, Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed are you, Simon. Now, Bar means son. So he's the son of Jonah. So Jonah was his dad's name. That's a good Bible trivia question, I suppose. So Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Now he's standing in front of the gates of hell. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there are many who would say that what Jesus is doing here is deputizing Peter to be the leader of Christianity. That this guy is now king of the hill. And this guy is going to be ruling over the church. He's going to be speaking uh, for God. And then as he nears the end of his life, he's going to lay hands on some other guy. And then that second guy is going to take that position. And then that guy's going to pass away and give it to the third guy. And on and on and on. There's going to be this succession of guys who are ruling over the church. Now, is that what Christ meant? Now, the best way to determine what Christ meant was to figure out what the 11, now there's 11 other guys there. And if anybody would know what it was that Jesus was talking about, you would assume it would be the other 11. They're there, they're listening to this, they're able to pick up on the language, they're listening to the voice inflection, they're reading the body language, and so they are the most qualified to tell us whether or not Jesus was making Peter a king of the Christian hill, so to, so to speak. Now, 
I don't believe that that was their interpretation of what Jesus was saying here. The reason why I don't believe it is that there had been and there is going to continue to be an ongoing argument among the 12. And that argument is going to go all the way to the night of the betrayal of Christ. And the argument is, which of them will be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Now, if Jesus were saying to Peter, hey, you're number one. You are the man. Everything is going to be built on you. That argument would come to an end. All of the, all of the arguments would then become who's going to be second greatest in the kingdom. Because Christ has clearly made Peter the greatest in the kingdom. And yet, as I say, right to the very night of his betrayal, they are still fighting among themselves as to which of them is going to be number one. Now, you talk about the night of his betrayal. Where was Peter sitting at around this triclinium, this U-shaped table? Now, we know that Jesus, he was on the left. He was second on the left. This is where the host of the evening would sit on the right would be an honored guest. On his left would be the most honored guest. John was on his right. Judas was on his left. Judas is given here this most honored position. Now, did Judas and John just get there early and grab the best seats? We don't know. Did Jesus put them there? But as you go around the table, you would be descending in that culture. You would be viewed upon as being least important. If somebody was sitting to your right, they were considered more important to you uh, than you. Now, where is Peter sitting, right? He's sitting in the cheapest seat at the table. Now, if he is the grand poobah of the church, then what is he doing sitting in such a cheap seat? Now, what Jesus said was, you are Petros, and upon the Petra, is what I am gonna be building my church upon. He uses two different words. In fact, they're two different genders. Now, John MacArthur, quoting Lydell and Scott from their uh, Greek lexicon, he says, Lydell and Scott, for example, who give us Greek meanings, say that it means rock bed, rocky mountain, or rocky peak. In other words, you're a stone, but upon a rocky peak, or a rocky mountain, I'm gonna build, build my church so that the statement is a contrast. You're Peter, a little rock. I'm gonna build my church on a big rock. And what is that rock? What did Paul say to the Corinthians? That look, there is no foundation that is gonna be laid than the foundation of Jesus Christ. What is it that unites us? Our view of baptism? Of course not. We argue about that all the time. Our view of, of gifts of the Spirit? No, we argue about that. About end times and when is the rapture going to happen? No, we always argue about that. What unites us is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The church is built upon the confession of what Peter is saying here. And those who are of that confession, Christ says the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Now, there's a lot about hell uh, we don't know. 
Now, we know, we know a few things about hell. There's not a lot about heaven that we know. But when it comes to hell, there's just a couple things that we know. We know, first of all, that it's down. Now, I don't know where it's down, but Jesus said, we had this back in chapter 11 of Matthew. He said, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, shall be brought down to Hades. You're going to be brought down to hell. Now, we know that it is also a temporary prison. It is a place of incarceration because Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he said, I am who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell, Hades, and death. What do you, what do you use keys for? You, know, you use keys to unlock stuff, right? So hell is a place that people are locked in. Now, who is locked in? Hell is that holding tank for the spirits or the souls, whatever terminology you want to use, uh, for the unsaved. Because we are told again in Revelation chapter 20, death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. So a person that enters into eternity without believing that Christ that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, there is some kind of a holding place that you are at while you await the final judgment. Now, as I say, it's temporary because the very next verse says, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. So there is gonna be a point where hell uh, will be no more, and uh, the lake of fire is what consumes it. Now, Jesus, he said, the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Now, that doesn't mean that you cannot be harmed. It doesn't mean that there is an end to spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean that somehow uh, the enemy can't do anything negative in our life at all. Now, the gates in that era, they were a place of planning. They were a place of strategy. They were a place where authority was on display. Court cases would be tried at the gates of the city. And what Jesus is saying is that hell, the plans, the strategy, the authority, that it has no bearing on those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That word prevail, it means to win the day. It means to have victory. It's only used one other place in the New Testament in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 23, where we read, but they were insistent, demanding with a loud voice that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests, here's our word, they prevailed. They won the day. Jesus is saying for those who are the followers of Christ, we have come to an authentic relationship with him. The strategy the power, the authority of the kingdom of darkness has no bearing upon our life at all. We walk in victory because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be hassled. It doesn't mean that you can't be attacked. It doesn't mean that you can't be tempted, but it means you're not going to lose. The strategy that he has designed for your family, your kids, your grandkids, 
that strategy as we walk in the victory that is ours in Christ has no power over us. And as the followers of Christ, we don't need to be paranoid about demons. We don't need to be worried about the devil jumping around the next corner. Demons and the devil are nothing more than the errand boys of God. And they are on God's leash and they cannot go one inch further than what God allows them. And when God is finished with them, they're going to find their sorry rear ends in the lake of fire. And that will simply be that. This is the victory that is ours in Christ. Now I ask you, who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who is Christ? And you have to understand that Christ is the only way to salvation. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. You don't go to heaven because you give money to the church. You don't go to heaven because you attend church. You don't go to heaven because you support missionaries or go on mission trips. You don't go to heaven because you're a nice person. You go to heaven because you have received the gift of God. Jesus Christ has won your ticket to paradise. And as you turn to Christ, you find yourself before the thrice holy God, righteous and holy, not because of your works, but because of the works of our glorious Savior who has loved us. And this is why the Bible says, if we will call on the name of the Lord, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Now, when I say to you, who is Jesus Christ? What do you say? Who do you say that he is? What is your answer? Now, if your answer is not, he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm telling you, you're not saved. Now, I'm not, I'm not making some claim I'm better than you. Goodness knows I deserved hell, but I embraced Christ and he saved me by his grace. And you're not going to be saved until you embrace his grace, until you turn and call upon him. And I want to give you that opportunity. Why should you die? Why do you leave this place in a relationship where you're wrong with the Lord? Don't do that. Salvation in the gospel is so simple. Turn to him and live. I want to give you that opportunity. If you know that you're not right with the Lord and you want to, you want to say yes to Christ, you're calling on his name, yes, I need to be forgiven. I'm changing my mind about who Jesus Christ is and I want to become a follower of Christ. I simply ask that you raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. Is there anybody here? You know that you're not right with the Lord. You want to be made right. You want, to, you want to be saved. You want your sins to be forgiven. Just raise your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. Is there anybody here you want to say yes to the Lord this morning? Today's a day of salvation. Now, for those of us who are the followers of Christ, let's understand who he is, and what he has done for us. And oh, may we be his worshipers this week. Oh, how good, how good the Lord is to us. Oh, let's praise him. Father, I thank you for your great love. I thank you that over and over again, we find 
Lord, you were so patient with the 12. You were just so tender in dealing with them and you brought them slowly along. And Father, we thank you that you have been so patient with us. We thank you that you too are bringing us slowly along. We're not all that we should be right now, but thank God we're not what we used to be. And your grace is alive and your grace is at work in our hearts. And Father, may we continue to lift up praise and thanksgiving for you are so good. Lord, help us to walk in honorable ways before you this week. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.